What if we could reimagine the traditional notion of a high flyer? Hey friends, welcome back or welcome to the High Flyers podcast where we do reimagine a high flyer, showcase the brightest and most relatable role models and companies and their journey from sunrise to today. As one of the premier products in our Curiosity Center lineup, providing on-demand intelligence, featuring Olympic athletes, business and cultural leaders, students, journalists, investors, founders, and more from around the world to help you be 1% better every single day. I'm your host, Vita Tagawal, and let's have some fun. Welcome to episode 124 and installment 23 in this special investment memo series where we unpack a specific company, industry, or topic in short, sharp, educational episodes. Today, we're unpacking the exciting startup, Someday, empowering accountants to redefine how the world measures and reports on environmental impact. In this conversation with two of the co-founders, Jess Richmond and Lindsay Ellis, based in Tasmania, Australia, learn about how their regional upbringing and global work experiences from Dubai to Norway influences the outlook on life today. This one's candid. I asked them about how they first met, which is quite the story, the magic moments that led to them leaving their full-time jobs and going all in on building someday, the crucible moments, including their first customer, their first product and engineering hires, and transitioning from an accounting firm to a software platform. And be sure to have your notepad ready to understand what exactly is carbon accounting, what are scope one, two, and three emissions, and in what can seem a crowded space, how have someday built their point of difference for investors, customers, and employees to join them on this mission as they build from Tasmania, Australia for the world. It's now time to explore your curiosity. Please enjoy. Jess Richmond and Lindsay Ellis, Team Someday, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having us. I'm excited to have you on. Jess, we spoke a couple of weeks ago. I'd actually reached out as a LinkedIn DM and Jess was kind enough to reply straight away, which is really nice. Um, maybe a good place to start is give the listeners some context on each of you. Jess, why don't we start with you? Where were you born and where do you live now? Yeah, so I was born in pretty regional Tasmania. I was born in a town called Burnie and I grew up in even more rural Tasmania in a town called Yola. Um, very famous for its potato growing capacity. So I left like a lot of Tasmanians uh, to go to uni and to get a grad job. And now, surprisingly enough, I live back where I started in Burnie and that's where Someday is headquartered as well. And I noticed on your LinkedIn, did you work in, you worked in Dubai and also other parts of Australia? Is that, is that right? Yeah, so when I was at uni, um, <laughs> being from here, it's not the easiest place to find connections as you're going for a graduate job. Um, I was probably always relatively ambitious in where I wanted to go with law. And so I actually ended up in Dubai on an internship in corporate finance um, at a mm. law firm through a cousin of a friend of an auntie of a sister <laughs> partner that happened to be there while an internship program was running and then I worked um, at Alan Linklater's in um, Melbourne as well as my first grad job. Mm. We'll get to your career in a second but Lindsay I want to ask you the same question where were you born and where do you live now? 
Yeah, so I had a bit of a reverse journey. So obviously I've ended up in Danny, Tasmania, but I was actually born up in Broome in WA. Um, so I had a pretty interesting childhood, um, obviously being born in Broome, but my family lived in a remote Aboriginal community, probably about four hours, five hours drive outside of Broome. So that was, um, yeah, slightly different to a lot of people's upbringings and certainly down here for the most people in Tasmania, that's pretty exotic. <laughs> and are you similar to Jess where you've had experiences through different parts of Australia and the world? Yeah, so obviously lucky enough to, to grow up in WA and uh, started, uh, we moved down to Perth when I was about uh, 12 and so I started my career in Perth, um, but lucky enough to travel quite broadly. Um, I lived over in uh, Norway for a little bit, we can talk a little bit about that, um, and then I took a job in New Zealand and then in a very roundabout way found my way down to Tasmania. <laughs> Very cool. I love the international experiences that you both have and you're back in Tassie. So Tassie is clearly the place to be that you've chosen to come back to. <laughs> Tassie. <laughs> I, generally at this point, I ask guests what was their first job and what do they do now? But I thought with both of you, I'd change that up and ask, what's been the career experience that's taught you the most? Um, Jess, do you want to go first? Yeah, it's, it's probably hard to pinpoint. I've had a pretty interesting career journey to where I am now. I think it's, it's probably hard to separate two experiences. First, I think sort of corporate law was really formative. I think coming from really middle of nowhere, Tasmania, to, you know, a 30-floor building on Collins Street and working with, you know, Fortune 500 companies and all of the complexity that comes with that, that sort of experience was very, you know, culturally shocking um, and a completely different environment to anything I'd ever grown up in. But it forced me really quickly to kind of become a bit of a chameleon and know how to kind of work within my environment, how to ask questions, how to actually, I guess, just embed myself within teams doing stuff that might be entirely new, both, you know, more of that sort of cultural level or general exposure, as well as technically. And so I think it just taught me what good looked like really quickly as well. And so I had an amazing experience there with partners that really looked after me uh, and gave me some pretty amazing experiences. So I guess I worked out, you know, what is the ambition? What does good look like? And I was in a grad group with people that, you know, were really high achievers as well. And so I come to really love being in that high performance environment. But then I had to come back to Tassie um, for family reasons. There was a, um, a health problem in the family and it just wasn't practical for me to keep flying between Melbourne um, and Tassie and I had to make a call. And so I actually ended up at a small AXS-listed mining company um, here in Burnie as their commercial manager. And that experience could not be more polar opposite. Um, my experience in law where suddenly... I was the manager of, you know, departments with 60, 70 year old men who had been wow. in this organization for more than 20 years. Um, I wouldn't exactly say high performance environment, but really significant opportunity to kind of get in there as a senior manager, really understand how industry works and how these corporations work and how you needed to be able to communicate to someone running a factory or a a processing plant or shipping or the CFO um, as much as a sophisticated client on the other end of a file. So it threw me into the real world and I think that's actually been the most formative thing that's helped us in terms of where we are now. Mm. 
And Lindsay, I think you've had slightly different experiences in my doing my research prior to this. Is there an experience that stands out for you that taught you the most? Yeah, it's certainly, it's been a little, little bit of a non-linear journey for me. Um, so I actually started at uh, PwC in uh, WA. And after a few years there, I decided to take a bit of a, maybe an impromptu career break. Um, I was uh, dating a girl at the time um, who, who was Norwegian and wanted to move back to Norway. And so I made the oh, decision wow. that I'd um, kind of pull up stumps in, in Australia and move over to Norway without a job lined up and without too much kind of certainty around the situation. And so for me, I'm quite a conservative guy, uh, just in terms of, I guess, career planning and some of these things. So it was a really big decision for me. Um, but I, I did make the move and I actually got a job working in a kindergarten over there uh, as like a basically yeah. like a teacher's assistant. Uh, and so that obviously in Norway, they speak pretty good English, but obviously none of the kids are particularly proficient in in English. So it was definitely a journey for me. I learned Norwegian uh, while I was working at the kindergarten and obviously got exposed to Norwegian culture, which actually turned out to be quite formative for me, especially, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about Sunday's mission and sustainability in general, but really the Norwegian kind of outlook on some of these things kind of opened my eyes uh, and led me down a career, uh, a pathway of uh, further study in sustainability in Norway. So I think just as an experience, kind of the context of working in the kindergarten uh, and a place that was a very new second language for me, and provided some kind of communications challenges that I needed to overcome. But that was, it was really exciting. And it was yeah, such a nice environment to be kind of, I guess, getting to know a, a new country in, uh, obviously through the kind of local customs and the, the yeah, I guess the, like just the, the day-to-day lives of, of Norwegian people, it g- gave me quite a unique insight into how things, how things ran on a, of a very micro level which was really interesting and i think yeah certainly um shaped my my world outlook for some of this stuff fascinating so you went from pwc to a kindergarten in norway how how awesome is that i don't think that many people would have that experience hopefully that was in your pitch deck when you went when capital raising on the world's longest gap year basically And, and tell us about how both of you met. I think it's, I, I always find that fascinating that you both have different experiences. You both have these cultural influences and, and career influences. Yeah, how did, how did you, you two come together? Well, I have very strong memories of how I met um, Lindsay, who we will probably oppose. However, this is the <laughs> <laughs> So I just started at this mining company, um, and I've become quite close with my boss and we're like, oh, you know, I'm sitting here as um, commercial management and usually commercial managers, to be fair, are far more analytical, um, usually have a bit more of an analytical or accounting background than I had. So I was kind of like the lawyer that suddenly become a commercial manager. And he was basically like, oh, we should probably sort of get someone into the business analyst team to really round you out and actually start driving business analytics alongside all of the random strategies that you would like to develop. And so they went out to hire and I was sitting in my boss's office um, while Lindsay was being interviewed downstairs and a current supervisor come up and my boss was like, oh, how'd the interview go? And she was just like, oh, he's just amazing. It's incredible. We should hire him now. And I was like, oh, here we go. (laughs) Who do we have here? 
And so she was so complimentary and they basically, I think, gave you the job like the next day. It was very like fast moving. And then whatever it was, only a couple of weeks later, I think he started and I was like, oh, here he is sitting in his little cubicle, the new smart boy, I'll introduce myself. And our electricity sort of retailer was hosting this hackathon in our capital city Mm. about four hours away. And I was like, oh, hello, Lindsay. Like, I'm Jess. Um, I've seen this thing advertised. They're doing like a hackathon. I, you know, we could join a team um, for the business and go and, you know, hopefully win. Would you like to do that? And he was just kind of like, oh, yeah, could do. And I was like, oh, <laughs> okay, well, if that's your level of enthusiasm, fine. And so I was like, yep, sounds good. But then I actually just never <laughs> really engaged with you again for a very long time. I was like, he's just not an enthusiastic human being in my bubble. And so then we basically just kind of rolled eyes at each other for about a year and a half, I think. And that was kind of it. I just thought you were a total weirdo. Here's me expecting to go along to this hackathon. The hackathon (laughs) comes and goes, and I'm like, we're not doing that. No, because you were hopelessly laughing. Yeah, but yes was like, it was the most boring yeah ever. Anyway, so that's (laughs) the introduction, I guess. (laughs) And how long did both of you work together for? So you were in the same company, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Like five minutes from each other in cubicles for what, nearly... Probably, years. Yeah, two years. Two years until we actually work together on a project. I guess that's probably helpful context. We pretty much ignored each other. Lindsay continued to judge me for occasionally turning up <laughs> to morning meetings late and other such insignificant things. But eventually, um, I don't even know what year it was now, do you? Basically when all the hydrogen funds started coming out and FFI mm-hmm. was really just um, getting off the ground and... Lindsay and I started chatting somewhat generally about how, you know, we're not in this industry to sell our soul. We're not exactly like over the moon by everything we're doing, but in terms of, you know, having an impact, you have to be in the arena and mining is a place where you are well and truly in the arena and hydrogen was starting to come out and we obviously knew it wasn't a quick fix or anything, but it was an opportunity to sort of start thinking really long-term about, what this organization was going to be doing, you know, 10, 20 years from now. And there was all of this stuff up in lights about what the industry was starting to do as a whole. And so I flicked Lindsay, the, um, the state sort of hydrogen fund. And I was like, hang on, like, how, how does this interact with our organization? And he was like, well, obviously it's a way to possibly look at replacing natural gas in our process and reducing the emissions of the organization. And I was like, why don't we like put together a proposal? And Lindsay's the very like the conservative one that's like, oh, we'd have to like do all of these things. And I was like, oh, I'll just ask the board if they'll accept a proposal if we do it. And then I think we got approval to present like, I don't know, an hour later. And Lindsay's like, dear God, I have no idea what we actually need to do to prepare for this. But then we started working together for what, like a month, I suppose, off the side of our desk on this particular project. And we realised then that, you know, we work extremely well together. We were really efficient and this was really meaningful to us. Uh, But I guess we got to the end of that and we're like, we don't want to do business as usual anymore. Like we solely want to focus on these type of projects. Yeah, and I think there was a big opportunity there. We um, we managed to get funding and the, the project essentially was a feasibility study to look into whether this was actually technically possible. 
Um, but yeah, going through that process really kind of opened our eyes to the opportunities within kind of these heavier, um, hard to abate industries and just gave us a, a bit of a taster for it to be like, okay, actually, there's probably a lot of this these opportunities out more broadly in the in the business community. And how do we kind of bring that in, bring that kind of passion for helping businesses realize some of these um, specific initiatives into a, a more kind of yeah, tangible, uh, actionable plan for them? It was probably my epiphany moment too of the value of accountants and analysts because I think I'd sort of been you know, going along in my own world with a legal background, being like, oh, I'm sure they're you know, valuable in their area over here. But having that experience was when I really understood that to convince a board or to really engage with stakeholders, often it was coming down to the numbers and actually convincing people by storytelling through that data. And that was one of my first, I guess, really solid introductions to seeing how Lindsay's work in the financial modelling and the accounting was actually giving me... I guess the ammunition to tell a story that resulted in some kind of strategic decision making. And I think I just became pretty addicted to understanding that process more and how I could use that in more ways from that, from that process together. Back to the episode in a moment. If you're interested in suggesting an exciting company for us to consider showcasing in this investment memo series, check out the expression of interest form in the show notes. I look forward to hearing from you. Yeah, and there's a few threads we can go down here, but I think the thread that I'm most keen to go down is how did that translate from you had this insight and this problem area you wanted to tackle to leaving this job, and Lindsay, you mentioned earlier you're conservative, to leaving that and going, we're going to start something of our own. Talk talk about that, which which is almost like a magic moment. I, I imagine it's a asterisk moment that you look back on. What was that confidence boost or was it just Jess's delusional belief that you can make this work and, and Lindsay you bought onto that <laughs> do you want me to go yeah, you can start? As, as a pretty it's a bit of a mix of delusion and peer pressure probably we um I actually left the mining company we were at to go to another mining company um right as a chief commercial officer and Lindsay and I had joked so I guess jokingly kind of one of those things you throw away like oh we should start a business together haha and mm. Like, yeah, yeah, we sort of pulled on that thread for a little bit, um, but it was, you know, in a chat, nothing too serious. And then I left the the business and I was suddenly back being like a commercial manager with a legal background without, you know, the Lindsay's of the world feeding me that sort of data um, that I've become really accustomed to getting. And so I actually recruited from my old mining company, a business analyst that we both worked with, Toby. And I was like, come along do the same thing we're doing here and he did and then maybe only a couple of months into that new role the directors there were starting to ask me about working on other projects that they had and other companies and I sort of realized there might be a bit of an opportunity to say that I would work on other entities they were involved in this is a pretty small company Um, if I could do that as a consultant instead of an employee Um, because that would make more sense. I wouldn't be a full-time commercial manager trying to service others. And it was a bit of to and throw, but I basically realized they would approve this. And my first thought was, 
okay, so you're going to make my salary a consultancy agreement. And we got over that hurdle. And then I said, well, I've actually recruited these two young guys to come over and help me. I, I don't want to be in a separate entity to them. Um, can I put them on a consulting agreement? And they were like, mm, yes. And then as soon as I got the like partial yes, I just called you straight away. And I was like, we are literally never going to get a softer launch pad and a lower risk mm. way to start a company than right now. What are you doing? And then you had somewhat of a spiral. <laughs> Yeah, it was still like, even though the, the barriers to doing it were brought down significantly, like we talked about before, it's, it is still a difficult thing to jump, even though you've got kind of a, mm. a really, really big con- contract sitting there ready to go. It's kind of like, do I do it? Do I not? And so it took me it took me a bit of time to actually kind of pull the trigger. But again, it was Jess's delusional kind of conviction that this was going to be the thing. Uh, and I think for me, it was also really an opportunity to be kind of broadening um, broadening the work that we were doing, like in some ways, mining is awesome, and, and there's certainly an impact to have within that. But at a one one mine operation, there's only so many kind of um, projects and sustainability initiatives you can launch in a given time period. So, really, what excited me was the opportunity to have an impact through working with other businesses, and yeah, I guess being being your own boss is also like a pretty key driver um, to some degree as well. Was there a period when you knew that this business could be a, a big business and you could bring on a team and and I don't think at this point you had raised funding you mentioned the grants earlier and 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 like you alluded to you had a slightly different business model I believe to where you are now there's a lot of teams in there so I won't unpack all that because we'll be here for days but if we touch on one of them when was that moment where you both sat down or I think you got I don't know if Danny had joined by this point when you went this can actually be a real business. You can build something large here. I think we sort of built something in a small business sense, large off just being an accounting firm. So I, th- I think the second that we got that first contract, I'm a really conservative person, to be honest, in terms of planning. Like I had my life planned out at 12. I knew what I wanted to be. I had like a personal budget of what I was going to earn up until like 40. You know, I had literally forecast like time out for my non-existent children. Like I'm a very conservative person. I'm not a jump off a cliff. This will be fine. But I think as soon as I had that first contract, I knew, I guess, what my main skill set is in the context of if I could find a way to get into business would be people and communication and selling the value of what we're doing so as soon as I have one contract I knew that I would be able to bring in more work and we did grow our accounting firm from like two to like what 17 or something before we actually realized that we would consider this other route I don't know if you want to speak to that yeah, I think we, we kind of grew it and it was organic. We essentially won work, we did good work and we did the next job. And obviously you do more of that, you start to get bigger jobs. And it was it was interesting. There was a point in time there where um, we were kind of, it was me and Jess and a few of uh, more junior employees and we had to make our kind of like first um, first more senior hire, which ended up turning out to be Danny, who was um, his, one of his our other co-founder. And so we we rented this kind of small office at the time, <laughs> and obviously the rent down here in Bernie is relatively cheap. So I think we're paying one thousand three hundred dollars a month, um, and this place was like it was above like an unemployment agency. It didn't have its own bathroom, <laughs> and so we're in this like really small dingy office, 
And so, but we're getting this big work and so we're getting these kind of like relatively senior mining execs and other people coming to our little dingy office. And they would ask like, do you have a bathroom? We'd be like, no, but here's the tag to the gym across the road. The strength dam will let you in. You just have to put your name on the list. And they were like, wow. oh my God, where are we? And so, like, you must was, have been really good with your service that they they paid you despite the environment yeah. being a bit sketchy. <laughs> yeah, I, we were. They were like, "You're insane," but we would like your skills, please, Lindsay. <laughs> yeah, it felt pretty pretty authentic. But yeah, so we, we were interviewing Danny, and um, yeah, so there was two entrances to the to the office at the time. One up this kind of like front, um, kind of almost like a stairwell kind of thing at the front of the building, and then like this really dodgy door around the back. And so the unemployment agency downstairs, uh, people on their smoke breaks used to go in and smoke uh, at the back. And so there's a whole bunch of cigarette butts and stuff. And so we're expecting Danny to come in for this interview through the front. And then we hear this knock on the door at the back and we're like, oh no, like there's no way this guy's going to come work for us. Like he's just waited through like a sea of cigarette butts to, to come in to this interview. But um, we, we met with him and to his credit, he was on board from the very start. And I think that was really the, the turning point in terms of being able to scale the accounting firm at the time. Mm. Danny had some really complimentary skills and has 17 years as an accountant. So su super deep kind of knowledge in terms of the regular accounting work that we were doing at the time. And it, in some ways, mm. like that really allowed us to, to grow past the point of just being a, a small kind of two partner kind of accounting firm at the time. So I think that was really a pivotal time when Danny came and knocked on the the back door of our <laughs> tiny toiletless um, office. <laughs> but then Danny was also really pivotal in that next phase. So it's one thing to go mm. from two or four of us to, you know, nearly 20 of us. Once we got to that point, what we'd actually started doing, which, you know, you look back like how even, but we started getting jobs around you know, accounting for the purposes of thinking about sustainability. And we realised that step one of that was actually understanding the numbers. So what was the baseline emissions of this company to begin with? And we actually won a bit of work and we started doing that. And we're like, okay, we're obviously going to win more work in this space, setting baseline emissions. Let's go and speak to all of the carbon footprinting platforms and let's assess which software platform the accounting firm is going to use to, to make that as efficient as possible. And so we met with many, maybe like, I don't know, between five and 10 um, all around the world. And we kind of got to the end of each of those and we would sort of say, okay, this looks cool. We can share this with clients probably, but you know, the main thing we're interested in is, you know, getting that sort of accurate data so we can do the management accounting or the financial modelling to say, you know, if you invest this much in decarbonisation here, here's your return on investment and here's the financial implications of that. And, you know, unfortunately, and I guess to our surprise as an accounting firm, we would ask for the source data and the transparency and it pretty much was like, no, well, you just get the outcome. And we're like, oh, well, that doesn't really work. So from there, we pretty much started building a bit of a database on publicly available information. We started developing spreadsheets as templates and we started building as our product um, SharePoint sites, which is like a Microsoft SharePoint. No one in startups mm. would probably even know what SharePoint is. It's like 
using the G Suite for like a site, but in yeah, Microsoft. I guess it's like Notion. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. but like just, a really ugly, ugly version, very much not hot. And so we yeah. would get the client's details and we'd put like their logos and their pictures and colors. And we thought we were like developer extraordinaires when we worked out how to like do some little custom coding in the background to change like the Microsoft color scheme to match the client's logo. So we were like, here is your like stunning product here are your dashboards and we just like embedded Power BI, you know, here are all your yeah. pictures. This is your product. You just have to pay us. And we were charging like three and a half thousand dollars to do like an assessment and sell this product. And people were like, oh my God, that's amazing. Like, yes. And so we were generating like over a hundred thousand dollars in revenue really quickly of selling this like God awful product. And that's when Danny went, okay, what are we doing here? We're at close to 20 people, we're selling this product. Are we going to continue growing as like this boutique accounting firm um, that does carbon accounting? Or should we actually be building a product? Like, Should we actually be turning the lights on for every other accountant in the world, basically, to start doing these assessments properly? Because to be honest, the data we're having to rely on to do it is really shit. And unless we're starting to get actuals in from all businesses, we're never going to actually be able to do this well. And there's no way that our accounting firm is going to, you know, <laughs> do carbon accounting for everyone. And so Danny was very much like, it's time to think product. And I think you and I had a bit of an existential crisis on that for like a night. Yeah. Yeah. We, we definitely got accustomed to being an accounting firm and having these relationships with the, the clients and, and end users and yeah, a bit more of a deep relationship. Mm. And I think we were a little bit worried that, becoming a software company mm. would be a, a leap too far mm. and so we, we certainly thrashed it out and went backwards and forwards a bit but yeah certainly credit Danny for having the foresight up front mm. to be okay this isn't scalable in its current format and there's a really big opportunity to to yeah. help other accounting firms to really do this in a way and what year was this last year last, last year so you've, you've yeah you've made a pretty recent pivot and, and and it and at this point you hadn't raised any external funding if i'm right it was all you were generating revenue and that probably turned into profit i imagine because you said you got team at 20 yeah we were using our profits from you know our work in management accounting and mining and the carbon accounting and we actually did hire a software developer so simon bless him came to tasmania on a career break he'd been a developer in sydney and melbourne and we met him at like the local penguin brewery and we were like oh simon we just have this idea where we could build this product we're currently using sharepoint um and it'd make us 10 times more efficient and we think we could sell this to so many more of our clients if it just was a bit hotter basically and so i had done like 200 slides on canva and they were hideous of like this is exactly what we need to build and i was sharing it to simon um at the brewery and he was clearly like you people are absolutely cooked, but like this looks somewhat interesting. And then the next week, Simon actually started. And so he had been building and we we're using all of our products to pay for this, what felt like a very expensive software developer to kind of superpower our accounting firm. And then as we were superpowering that and the product was getting built, I think like just the lights went on and we we're like, why are we building a product for one accounting firm? And yeah, Danny was really pivotal in that. 
You both mentioned sustainability, you mentioned carbon, these all areas of high interest. And they're areas that I spend a lot of time reading about and learning about. And frankly, I sometimes get confused. And I think there might be people, maybe some of your, some of your prospective customers that ask you some of these questions. Can you unpack that for us in a in a as simplistic sense as you can? What actually is carbon accounting and what are you trying to solve? I think at the very core of carbon accounting is we're looking to quantify the emissions that organizations and activities emit into the atmosphere. And so when you think about carbon accounting, it's basically just that trying to understand kind of based on what the business is doing, how much emissions are resulting from that activity. And so within carbon accounting, there's kind of three different kind of categories. Uh, they're called scopes. Scope one, which is uh, direct emissions from an organization. So that's like the fuel that maybe your cars might combust. Um, scope two, which is indirect, but from electricity. And then scope three is like the supply chain emissions and others, other categories that fall within that. But it's really everything else that the business does that results in carbon emissions being released into the atmosphere. So historically, like most of the focus has been around the scope one and two, which are relatively easy to measure, um, but broadly only account for a very small portion of an organization's overall emissions. So that's really the starting point. Um, scope three is really hard or has traditionally been really hard and been hard to get good data to be able to quantify emissions from those sources. So when we talk about carbon accounting, it's across all three of them, but it's really trying to understand the emissions from those areas and what has been quite difficult to do in the past is to really understand to a degree of certainty how, how those emissions actually re result in um, the impact. But it probably helps to like give an example of like the supermarket, like Coles. You know, Coles want to understand, or Woolworths, what are the emissions associated with everyone whose product is sitting on our shelves? Because if I'm doing that, I can start to buy from suppliers with a lower footprint and that brings my overall footprint down because every single person providing food on those shelves falls into that sort of scope three supply chain emissions Lindsay was talking about and so you have a problem right now where they're saying well you know let's be net zero or whatever else we want to say but in all reality they have no idea what emissions are associated with each farmer or factory that's producing that food and so even if they want to say, let's invest $10 million into decarbonizing our supply chain, they have no real way to measure what the return on investment was because they're basically estimating all of those emissions based on some outdated high-level industry averages. And so for a really long time, everyone's gone, how could I possibly expect my 10,000 small, medium-sized businesses to carbon account properly? And we've kind of delivered a heap of calculators or we've asked them to fill in a form but now really what the world is demanding is that we get actual data so we can start making choices as consumers we want to walk through those shelves and say I'm buying milk from this company not this company because I can see that they've invested in sustainability because I trust that carbon number and so in our view the only way that you will ever get to that is if nearly every business can be carbon accounting properly and with accuracy, as Lindsay said. And we believe that that only happens when a business can go and speak to their accountant and get an accurate emissions assessment done by a third party, the same way they can go and get help with a tax return. And so then you start to change the 
the narrative here where it's impossible for the supermarket to get accurate data from tens of thousands to it's actually business as usual and there's an accessible, accurate, affordable way to do that. And that's actually what is needed for the world to move forward on really transformative investment in decarbonisation. And that's really what we're focused on. Back to the episode in a moment. If you're new to this investment memo series, I'd encourage you to check out some of the other companies we've unpacked, such as Vexev, building the future of vascular imaging in episode 64 with co-founder John Carroll, or SmileyScope, using virtual reality therapeutics to manage pain and anxiety in episode 112 with CEO Evelyn Chan. All there, waiting for you. Super interesting. Thank you for sharing that. I think one of the aspects that I find interesting with this space also is differentiation. How do you actually differentiate? And I know with your business someday, you found an area of differentiation, which is why you've raised a significant amount of money recently from from really prominent investors. Can you unpack that? What what makes your approach different in terms of, to Lindsay's point, being able to actually solve the scope three problem? Yeah, I, th- I think we, we probably both have um, views on this, but for me, I think the biggest point of difference is, you know, people don't talk about this very often, but it doesn't actually matter what carbon calculator platform you want to use. There's thousands of them around the world. Every single one is facing the same problem. So no matter how instant they can give you a footprint or no matter how many million data points they say they have to produce the footprint, like reality is nobody is pulling data from specific businesses and saying, here is your overall footprint of your supply chain. Every single platform, ours included, like we're not pretending we have some magic formula right now. Every single platform is saying, okay, let's take the dollars you spent on this particular good or service or the liters or the kilos, let's multiply it by what's called a conversion factor or an emissions factor to get the equal amount of carbon. I go to Bunnings, I buy $10,000 worth of fence posts. There is a way to convert that into an equivalent amount of carbon. But what each platform is probably not sort of screaming about at the moment, which possibly adds to the confusion, is that actually isn't telling you the emissions associated with the particular timber provider at Bunnings. It's actually just taking an industry average from an academic journal probably five or ten years ago in another country to give you an average. And, yes, we're starting to see more localised academic research that provides this, but... It's meaningless if 90% of your emissions as a company are coming from outdated academic data. What you need to be able to do is get access to real data from your supply chain. And so our main point of difference is we're not trying to be quick. We're not trying to be super shiny and fast and an instant footprint. And we're not trying to say any user can jump in and become a carbon accountant overnight with no background. Here's your shiny dashboard. Here's your footprint, you know, Sally Ford. We're actually saying this needs to be as transparent and robust and as accurate as traditional accounting. So not everyone is jumping into a platform, preparing financial statements and reports to share with the world. We're actually relying on someone doing the boring work of understanding hundreds of pages of standards, disclosing deviations from various methodologies, having a full run sheet of every single transaction, What are the emissions involved? How have we done this? That's the boring side of 
proper carbon accounting that we actually think is going to be the expectation moving forward. And so we're actually trying to empower the accounting profession to make this accessible by giving them the tools and the database and the resources to actually make that level of accuracy and auditability normal for every business. We're not sitting here trying to say, we can quickly give you a good enough estimate. And I think a big, big issue is we've spent a long time saying, why bother going into the nitty gritty of measurement, just take action. But that kind of misses the way that the world works. Large organisations don't just write checks and hope that something good happens. Mm. They expect to see a return on that investment. That won't change. It's not about putting an obligation on an average SME to do something for them alone. It's actually the action that will give the transparency for that type of investment at the top end of town as well. The thing to note is one of the really key things that we think about when we think about carbon accounting is this accuracy or uncertainty aspect. And obviously there's it's one thing to have an accurate emissions factor. So that's the 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 unit that we're converting to in order to quantify the emissions. But it also depends on the information that's coming from the business itself. So with a lot of quick carbon calculators, essentially it's a self-input tool where the organisation makes their best guess in terms of the number of litres of fuel or the kilowatts of electricity that they might have consumed during a year. And so they might not necessarily have the rigour and the, the actual information being entered into there correctly. So really by empowering accountants, we're essentially meaning that that information that's going in is a lot more certain and accurate than it might otherwise have been because obviously accountants are quite... They're meticulous and scrupulous people. Aren't they just? And so it's it, it's the key piece in the puzzle that you have a partner like that that's working with you that can then ensure that the information that's actually going into these calculations is as accurate as possible because there's certainly a lot of other uncertainty within the, the overall calculation. And if you don't get the first bit right, then you're essentially multiplying the uncertainty um, that you would otherwise be focusing on. I think like the mm. last thing I'll say on that too as a big point of difference is we're really wanting to lift the hood on this stuff. So we're not actually sitting here saying that we can provide you with an accurate footprint. We're actually sitting here saying, well, your numbers are in red because your assessment is highly uncertain. You didn't have receipts. You couldn't have any evidence. You know, the factors you've used are really old because you haven't engaged anyone in your supply chain. We are wanting to make sure that the business and their accountant understands the source data, where did that emissions factor come from, and then how uncertain is that? We're happy to sit here and tell clients that your carbon assessment that you've just paid to you someday for to produce is crap and that there is more work for you to do. Like, that's what we are absolutely happy to do up in lights, and I think that is a very big difference and a very big change to what we have seen where everyone's competing on how accurate is my, you know, tool versus, well, how much are you disclosing around the inaccuracy so that the user can actually take steps to improve that? We've got a few minutes left. And, and one of the things we spoke at the top of the conversation is building out of Tassie. You're building from Tassie for the world. And, and Tassie is a growing market in Australia. And and for some of our overseas listeners, they might be wondering why are you based in Tassie and not based in Sydney or Melbourne or why have you moved to an international country? I'd love for you to share a bit about what's that been like raising raising capital from Tassie, hiring a team from Tassie and predominantly being based out of Tassie. I assume your clients are based all over Australia and maybe the world, but 
has that given you a, again? Is that a point of difference being based from Tassie and building for the world? Yeah, I, th- I think it's it's certainly something that we've been really focused on from the start. Obviously, we started our accounting firm down here, and it was somewhat serendipitous that we were here when we started and becoming a software company. But we've actually seen it's been really interesting. There is definitely some competitive advantages to being based in Tassie. Um, obviously, Tassie is one of the um, in terms of its electricity grid has some of the the lowest emission um, electricity available on, on the planet. We've got 100% renewables down here. So essentially we're heavily dependent on hydro. So a lot of the businesses down here have a natural advantage in terms of their emissions compared to the same business if it was operating on the mainland. So as an initial starting point, certainly there's been a lot of businesses down here that have really wanted to understand their emissions as a key point for their own differentiation. Mm. Um, and so from that side of things, it's been a great place to start, a great place to test and get some initial traction. So that, that's been really a, an awesome starting point. What we've also found is that Tassie as, a, as an employer brand and as a destination for people to come, it certainly has its advantages as well. So we've um, got two developers that are based down in Tassie. Most of the team is based in Tassie. And we really see that for a lot of people, especially coming out of COVID, somewhere like Tassie offers a really unique place to live and to build something really awesome. Yeah. One thing we haven't touched on yet is some of the skill sets in your team and, and some of the roles you'll have coming up as part of this capital raise. A lot of our listeners are early in their career or they're mid-career and they're looking for new motivations and new opportunities and they might be really excited about what you've, both of you have just shared. Do, do you want to share a bit about some of the existing skill sets in the team and some of the skill sets you're looking to fill in the next three, six, 12 months? Yeah, I think like... We were really lucky even before we sort of closed our round, we just started recruiting. And I think that's one of the advantages of obviously having revenue come in. Um, so we mm. very early filled a lot of our engineering spots. So we went from three non-technical founders to a CTO and three additional software developers in a really short period. But what we're finding is we will take on another software developer um, in the next say, month or so. We'll be putting that role out to join them. And that team's just been incredible. Like the way the product team has come together, um, Andrew's our CTO based in um, Queenstown. He's one of those sort of OG machine machine learning guys. He's basically like a data scientist come CTO on the tools enough that really has that future vision and looking around uh, corners. The three developers that are working on this are, you know, incredible. There's a mix of X0, um, front end, just real huge strong back end as well and everyone just has this amazing place so we are looking for another developer to come into that probably a full stack to support them and the roadmap as it continues to get bigger and bigger Uh, and Danny is heading up the um, product team as well and he's just bringing this kind of you know 17 year deep insight into what an accountant needs in a product and really thinking through that product lens so we're extremely product-led company just by virtue of the fact that we're building for ourselves and we've used those type of tools and we know what we need and we're able to have this really strong rapport with other users as we test and we get feedback so that team is amazing and we're really looking for someone else to come in there and then the other side of it we have the most you know incredible um, design director in in Nick his ex um, future super and he's just come in and kind of given a brand and a narrative to someday in an unbelievably fast period of time. And that's just picking up so much momentum. So we're really looking at sort of marketing and comms roles at the moment. 
to help complement that so that we can tell what is a pretty complex story to a lot of different users in a lot of different places in the right way. And then the third sort of area we have, which is Lindsay's um, team is around that technical support where we have those deep accounting and sustainability academic backgrounds. This has to be done right. It's not something that you can do just off the side of your desk. And so we're looking at someone who can come in and support that team in educating clients and keeping them up to date on changes in the regulatory landscape, training them through different changes in carbon accounting more broadly. So that sort of training coordinator is a role that we're hiring for at the moment as well. Mm, and I think, I think Jess, on your point about storytelling and branding, I love your existing branding. I think that was one of the, it's funny to say that, but that was one of the attractions too when I came across your page on, on LinkedIn. I'm like, well, I need to find out a bit more about this. So I, I would completely agree that carbon accounting, when you hear those two terms, there's so much perceptions built into that. But when you see it through a window that is clear and fun and exciting, some of that perceptions can be tackled in a very basic manner. So very exciting we've come to the end of the episode thanks jess thanks Lindsay, and then yeah really excited for where someday goes and then hopefully see you when i'm down in tassie next sounds yeah, good awesome. thanks Chris. i hope you've taken away some valuable insights from this conversation to apply to your lives and continue to be one percent better every day and stay tuned for the next episode in the series where we take you inside another topic company or industry